0: Welcome back to Talk Africa's second podcast. Today, we are joined with by Esther Muame. Firstly, I'd like to thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. And before we start, could you please take some time and tell us what it is that you do?
1: Thank you, Johar and Oge okay, for inviting me. So I'm Esther and I'm currently calling in from Lusaka, Zambia. So this is a uh, central South in Africa. It's a bit hard to describe um, yourself or myself in 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 a few in a few words, but I like to think of myself as uh, an artist, Um, and uh, I connect my artist work, artistry work, to solving inequalities, both gender inequalities and digital inequalities. So. This um, takes the form of, of my work with um, my nonprofit organizations, So I have that too. One of them is called Safety Dress for Girls, the C.P. Foundation, which is based here in Zambia. And the other one is called Digital Grassroots, which is uh, a global youth network um, where we try to, to solve, uh, to increase digital citizenship. For young people across the globe. So, um, besides that, uh, I'm mostly concerned with um, trying to find creative solutions to inequalities uh, by embodying dignity and autonomy to whoever um, my work benefits. And on a personal level, uh, I I write, I write. Um, I'm trying to be a novelist, and I write short stories and poetry. So, uh, in addition to abstract art, so that's a bit
0: about me. Okay, thank you. So, you previously mentioned that you are passionate about gender, digital literacy, and grassroots advocacy. So, what sparked your interest in those areas, and how do you say that these areas influence one another? Mm, yeah.
1: So, when it comes to Digital literacy. I, I suppose um, looking at it from where I grew up. Uh, I I grew up in in a small in a small town here in Zambia, and I my first job was actually at an internet cafe. And so when I had the opportunity to connect and learn about how the internet can change. Um, my life can connect me to other young people across the globe, it really um, made a big difference to me. And I saw that it's important that many young people are given that autonomy and that that freedom to live in a way that um, we are able to shape our own futures as opposed to having a set path For us. So that's why I find that my work with um, digital literacy is very important to me. And that's how I I got into it. And I think that the more we as young people, especially young people from, I would say, um, underrepresented regions, and what I mean by underrepresented regions, I mean um, these are communities where we are not the decision-makers in the space, But what we're seeing is that even with um, the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, and what is happening these days with social justice, the internet has become a lifeline. And without that connection, if we're not able to make decisions around it, then it means that we'll be sort of only seen as users or beneficiaries rather than co-creators of that uh, space. Um, So that's uh, how I believe these influence each other, and also at the same time, that's why I see that this space is very important for us, especially if we want to develop the continent and, and also make a difference. On a personal level, on a national level, on a regional level as
2: well as on a global level. Thank you very much, that's really interesting. Um, Our second question is, as someone who's passionate about gender, how do you think society's views on gender has evolved? Do you think the women living in privilege find it easier to embrace, and embrace empowerment and fulfillment now?
1: I I feel like, there are many there are many pieces to the puzzle here, and uh, when we're talking about gender, there are also many aspects because um, you you can see that gender equality and feminism are are much more well accepted than before. And when I say well accepted, I mean they're they've moved into the public conversation than before. And they're not only seen as negative, but people are now starting to have the conversation. Uh, because for example, when I, when I started my work with safety um, for girls, someone said, oh, you're a feminist. And at that time, it was not in a positive way. And uh, I was about 17 at the time when I started it. And I was like, what's a feminist? I didn't even know. But um, coming to these days, I think the, the understanding of gender equality is much more prominent and people are more open to the conversation. There is a lot of disagreements. There is a lot of um, fighting, even within the, the movement. But it is from a place where we, we are all trying to understand what does this mean for the world and the societies we live in, and um, another aspect is what does this mean for our culture? And there is a lot of conversation going on about how um, the, the Western concept of colonization could be affecting the way we live today. And from this perspective, I see it um, on two sides. One of the one side of the conversation is saying that um, this uh, new wave of feminism is top-down it's brought, it's brought by the colonizers And another side is saying that we have had gender equality in our culture so it's not something new to us so whether um privileged people or find it easier to embrace or not i wouldn't be able to say because it depends on the culture it depends on an individual person. But what I know for sure is that every human being wants to minimize pain and wants to live in a community where they're accepted and able to thrive. And uh, for some, thriving in this lifetime seems easier in a patriarchy. For some, thriving in this lifetime means making sacrifices so that future generations don't have to have to fight the same fight that we're fighting so it's different but I think there's definitely progress on all sides.
0: So you also mentioned that only at 17 years old you lived abroad alone how was this experience and how would you say that this experience has shaped you and your views on gender? Yeah
1: so um I was doing my undergraduate at that time and um what I recognize is that um, as young people, we, we do not have comprehensive um, safety education to prepare us for, for the world out there, for what it means to be um, a citizen, an active citizen, um, and what that the implications are for young women. Uh, and when I talk of safety, um, as safety for girls, we believe safety both internal and external. So that means internal safety talks about mental health, cultural health, health, and emotional health. External safety talks about bodily um, health, societal health, and environmental health. And one thing we did was we tried to we did a survey called. Um, we did a report called the safety report in, in my organization to find out how much the girls learn about safety, this six sentence of safety that I just mentioned in schools. Um, and we found that it was very, very low. For example, um, in one of the groups we we surveyed we found that only 11 percent of girls had learned about emotional health during their basic education and uh about 60 percent 16 percent have learned about mental health for example but when it came to things like um personal hygiene it was up to 80 percent for girls and what we see here is that there is a lot of emphasis on what can be seen, on how girls should see or how girls should act, as opposed to our mental wellness and emotional wellness, which is critical when we are engaging as, uh, as citizens um, in the world out there. And so I found that I did not have uh, enough information about these things, which um, made it very challenging because when it comes to facing mental health issues, emotional health issues, or issues relating to culture and how they affect our decision making, I believe that this is something that should be taught in schools. And so this is something that um, my organization, Thank You First Girls, is trying to respond to by creating a curriculum that addresses these issues for young girls.
2: Thank you. Um, Following on from talking about Safety First for Girls, so it's a great way to empower and equip women for the world. We were wondering that if you came across any hurdles whilst you formed the foundation, and what's your ultimate effect or the ultimate goal you'd like the foundation to have? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I,
1: I believe that for any young person who wants to to contribute to society, there is a lot of challenge. But I see, uh, I'll have to mention, this is changing these days because now the the voice of youth is, is quite, um, um, many people want to hear what young people have to say. But I'll say back uh, in the day when I was doing it, as a young person, uh, it was quite difficult because there wasn't a lot of trust that young people know what we are saying mm-hmm. and that we are able to to execute our ideas into uh, trap effects into society and even though these days uh, it's changing there's still a lot of um, issues when it comes to funding global south organizations when it comes to funding youth-led organizations because there is a very a Western-centric model when it comes to solutions on the ground. So you could find that funding is funneled towards a specific issue and not another. But when it comes to things like safety, everything is interrelated. So if there isn't a holistic and comprehensive approach, then it means that we are only solving the side effects rather than the, the key problems. Um, There are also a lot of things, uh, a lot of issues that come with uh, finding an organization. Um, Initially, my work started as a blog rather than as an organization, but I saw that there is a need to um, give it a professional face rather than make it a personal project so that more people could contribute and that's how it was registered. Um, But still, when it comes to registering a business, very expensive for a young person to maintain when it comes to um, managing different groups of people it's also very taxing though we see that many movements are being led by black young women but it's done at the cost of our own um, our own finances our own mental health so it's, it's more like we're putting we're putting our bodies On the line just to make sure that we live in a better world and so if if i have to if i have to give any advice in regards to that i'll say it's important we take care of ourselves the world continues and it's important that we do not uh, sacrifice our own well-being for the cause but that we are able to find joy and happiness as much as possible, even when we're doing important work.
0: So you've also mentioned a bridging digital divide between young privileged people and those from unrepresented communities. Where do you believe this divide stems from?
1: Mm, I'll say that, well, the digital divide is not only between young people or privileged persons. Uh, the digital divide cuts across many issues, it cuts across gender, it cuts across rural urban disparities, it also cuts across um, regions. So the digital divide is um, it's in many, many different aspects. And so what what I found from, from my work is that um, where they were more uh, internet cables, for example, undersea cables, and where there were more data centers, then the then the internet connectivity was higher than where there was not. And if we look at it from from recent data, we find that the internet cables are 80 percent, if not 90 percent, owned by. Private companies like the top five, like Amazon, uh, Facebook, Google. So we find that it's a very the internet is being um, the internet cables are being uh, sourced from the Western elite, and we have to say that's where the the internet development came from. But this can replicate is um, digital colonialism, and that's something that many people are not aware of because we use the internet, but we're not we don't know whose cables are we using, um, and uh, how is the internet coming to us? Um, and this also connects to the issue of of privacy and digital sovereignty because when you see that most of the data centers are put in the West, of course they can be excuses that uh, because it's cooler in the West or because they have constant electricity. That what we see is that our data is stored outside the continent or we don't know where our data is stored. And that means that um, our autonomy in that space is quite low. So this digital divide comes from um, Understanding how the internet works and who controls the internet infrastructure, and what does that mean for our future as young people? Uh, what does that mean for our our future as um, as a continent uh, or as people in underrepresented regions? And I'll say again, underrepresented regions are are these the places where most people are not in the decision-making space or in the internet government uh, space. And uh, what we see is that many young people, even if we're considered digital natives, we are not in that, um, in that space. And that's where the main problem is. Not only that, it's also a gendered issue because many women are not in that space. And we see that the digital divide, there is also a gender digital divide where mm, less women are connected than men for various reasons and so that, um, that's what the digital divide is about and that's what um, digital graphics is trying to solve.
2: Thank you. Um, we know that you believe digital literacy is important shaping young people's futures as you even mentioned that it can act as a type of lifeline to help those from underrepresented underrepresented communities. But you're wondering, who do you think should be held more responsible for, to, for improving this digital divide? Is it, I guess, the Western internet companies, like you've mentioned, or perhaps the actual African governments or African private sector? or the community members? Who would you say is the most um, important stakeholder that should be held responsible for aiding this divide?
1: Yeah, Mm, yeah. from from, uh, a top view, I'll say the the most that we can do at the moment is to engage a multi-stakeholder approach in internet governance. This is where, different groups of people come together and talk about the way forward for for internet governance. For example, we could have academia, we could have the private sector, we could have the government. Uh, uh, Everyone in civil society, everyone has to come together to to make solutions. So from a top level view, that is one approach. Another approach would be the creation of community networks. Community networks is where a community creates their own internet uh, network, and that helps with rural connectivity. And that could be a good way to solve um, internet ownership uh, at that level. Uh, in another vein, we need to look more at internet infrastructure and ask how it's affecting our world. And I think at every level, there is uh, a problem or an issue to be resolved because even the more we get connected the more we need data centers and the more we need internet cables and these take a lot of electricity they cause a lot of heat and they contribute to climate change so we also need to be aware of what connectivity means of what we in the digital divide means if, and um, how we can make sure that even as we are connecting everyone, we're still considering the the climate crisis that is ongoing at the at the moment. Uh, at the same time, we also have to hold big tech accountable because what we're seeing is that these big tech companies have more GDP rather have more Entire country's GDP, and this creates a power imbalance. And so each country needs to work on their digital policy so that they are able to to protect uh, the integrity of of the, the citizens in their communities. Uh, and on another hand, we need to get more women in tech because, and I'll say more women of color. In tech, because um, our communities are facing the brunt of it, and if there isn't um, an intersectional and gendered approach to it, then um, the internet will also exacerbate the inequalities that we face. So there are a myriad of issues around it, and no one approach is. Correct, but everyone has to come together to, to solve it. And I think that's where this progress comes in so that we can, we can use the capacity of future internet leaders um, and make sure that it's not the same, the same faces appearing at every meeting, that people can speak for their own community from their own personal experience rather than having someone who has never experienced an internet shutdown or who has never had to pay for an internet bundle, um, making decisions for entire communities they have no experience in. So uh, I think that is the approach we can take.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining the talk today, Esther. I think what you're doing is so needed and it's just quite interesting that you've chosen to focus on the intersect between African women and female, greater gender equality, and then also digital and technology, because I guess technology is the way of the future. So if you get African women to get into that, you're empowering more women in our societies and communities. So thank you very much for joining. It was very educational. And we'll make sure to include your website in our Episode description, so more people can check out what it is you're doing. But uh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Doha, and okay. And I'll say, I guess um, as a young Black woman, we do have an intersectional perspective into the world by the nature of who we are. So what wouldn't make sense to someone else is our lived experience. So I, I also have to thank you for creating this space where uh, you're bringing different voices and for utilizing our work so thank you so much for what you did no problem